No, COVID time is definitely not the same as the rest of life was. I remember thinking that the days were just infinitely too long and infinitely too short at the same time. It didn't make mm -hmm. any sense. You would sit around thinking, is it three o'clock yet? And it would be five minutes to three for three hours. And then you get to the end of the day and you've accomplished nothing because it seemed <laughs> to slide by so fast. You just heard the voice of the Canadian poet Anne Carson, who is my guest on this episode of How to Proceed. And for the very first time, we have not only one, but two guests, because so much of Anne Carson's work and process is tied up to that of her collaborator and partner, Robert Curry. So we decided we wanted to talk to them both today. In this episode, they talk about translating words into other forms, about love, about the color red and green, and about the strangeness of working in a new landscape. And as you might hear, I am not Lynn Ullman, who created this podcast together with the House of Literature. My name is John Freeman. I'm one of the guest moderators this season, and I'm thrilled to be talking today to Carson and Curry about reading and writing, art and creativity, and the world we live in now. Anne Carson has been heralded as one of the most important contemporary poets of our time, praised for her innovative, imaginative, and genre-defying work, which has earned her a wide range of accolades and awards, including MacArthur Fellowship, our Lannan Foundation Award, and the T.S. Eliot Prize. Besides being a poet and a writer, Carson is also an essayist, a playwright, a translator, and a classics professor. She has published more than 20 books of writing and translation, among them the modern classic Autobiography of Red, just out in Norwegian as well as selected works such as Glass, Irony and God, Men in the Off Hours, Red Dock, Float, and a new adaptation, Norman Jean Baker of Troy. Anne Carson continues to expand her reputation as a genre-defying innovator, playing with and pushing the limits of language and form, combining the confessional and the critical and the definitional, the classical and the modern, in a voice which is uniquely her own, always with a subtle balance of erudition, humor, criticism and lyricism, her writing is equally skillful, surprising, insightful, and generous. Carson's stature as an artist is also based on the success of her collaborative performance pieces with a wide range of artists, including dance, theater, film, stage, often with her collaborator husband, Robert Curry, who is referred to as the randomizer during the creative process. More on that in our conversation. They're both currently in residence on Iceland, where they have been staying and working since last autumn, and I can't wait to talk to them about the art of poetry and collaboration and these unprecedented times we find ourselves living in. Welcome to How to Proceed. Uh, my name is John Freeman, and I'm talking to Ann Carson and Robert Curry. Um, welcome, both of you. Uh, nice to have you here. Thank you, John. Thanks. Can you tell me where you are right now? Oh, we're in Iceland, Reykjavik, by the sea. So you can see the sea out the window? Yeah, I can see the sea, and across the sea we can see the volcano, which is foaming up the sky. Redly. <laughs> Does it make you nervous at all being 
close to so many active volcanoes. <laughs> this is one activating right now. No, Just a mere one. <laughs> it's miles away. <laughs> it pretty, it's pretty elemental here. You know, like there were earthquakes for weeks before the volcano. And then a couple of weeks ago, we decided to go out to one of the glaciers. To, and so we're sitting below the glacier and for a vacation. For a vacation, a and they're 100 vacation. mile an hour wind, so we couldn't get out of the cottage. I couldn't get out the door of the kitchen. <laughs> so it's a kind of elemental place, I think. Yes. Yes, I would say elemental. Good word. Thank you. <laughs> and so much of the landscape there is made from um, lava flow, no? Yeah, most of it. It's just empty, covered with black rocks. It's a very strange thing because uh, if landscape is one sort of record of time, Mm-hmm. The the landscape you have in Iceland is a very um uh, it's, it's a very violent type of time I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah, you could say that, but it's also empty. I mean, it's what strikes you when you come to Iceland for a while and then go back home to America. Say, is that everything there is so over vegetated, so sort of fussy over everything? Over yeah, just crowded with stuff, you know. Plants and flowers and billboards, vines and billboards. <laughs> and it's just nice and clear. You look out and you see nothing. It's striking. I think what, what is it's a large percentage of the population of Iceland are all in Reykjavik. And then mm. outside, it's very, very sparse. Is that right. correct? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. There are 350,000 people, and I think 300,000 live in the Reykjavik area. Yeah. yeah. Have you been here? Have you ever been to Iceland? Uh, twice. I once last year, and I had the extremely memorable experience of driving around outside of Reykjavik towards one of the volcanoes. I don't remember which. Being led by an artist on the bus with voiceover of the description of what we were passing, and he sort of slipped very easily from a normal descriptive mode into retelling of some of the myths that you find <laughs> in the sagas. Yeah. The saga, yes. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of a, a, a very strange, you know. If in America you're 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 always close in certain capacities with certain people to the founding fathers, or I don't know, you know, family stories. It seemed in this that he was one conversational trip away from from mythology. It's true, and it's not mythology to them. It's the sagas, which are continuous with their history. They all have the same names as the people in the sagas, and the, the farms and the countryside have the same names as they do when they turn up in the sagas. And you can point to all the geographical features that are still there from the stories of the sagas. It's all just very alive to them still. It did feel like realism to them. Yeah, it, it does. It does. It's, it is one continuity with now, just lot longer ago than than you think of as history but it is to them history it's kind of like the ancient greek attitude to it which is myth is continuous with history it just sort of slips into the one slips into the other and things become a little more you know evidentiary but basically it's just human beings doing crazy stuff still so what are you both reading right now I'm reading All for Nothing by Walter Kempowski, translated from the German by Anthea Bell, with introduction by Jenny Erpenbeck, New York Review of Books. 
it's one of the best novels I've ever read. Wow. All right. Uh, how about you, Curry? You've got anything on the go? I just read whatever Anne brings home from from the sort of paltry selection of English <laughs> language books they have at the library. So I'm reading some David Lodge. Yeah, well, David Lodge. Which one? I can't remember. Small what the World, I think. Small it's World, that's what I'm reading. Oh, now. I love that book. It's hilarious. Right, yeah. It's yeah. funny. It's a great way to pass time. Yeah. Very good um, academic satire. Yeah. Maybe maybe the kind of book you read after you left academia. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been reading any of the, the, the sagas or, or the prose edda or anything like that while you've been in Iceland? I'm trying to read them with two Icelandic people. We meet every Sunday and um, go through. So I read in English. They read in Icelandic. So it's frustrating for me, but I'm trying to figure out, yeah, the mentality of it all. Mm -hmm. It helps for living here. The one guy is the, that's what he teaches, isn't it? Teaches yeah, the, the one guy is a professor of Icelandic literature at the university. So he knows everything there is to know about the sagas, but they all study them in school and have exams on them and, you know, treat it like factual material. <laughs> Oh. And it's also such, you know, it's part of that same story. I think, you know, it's everybody knows everybody who's related still, you know. So, so Arma, the person I'm studying with, the sagas with, is the brother of the prime minister, who is the best friend of the person doing our residency papers. It's just like, it's weird. It's so tight. Yeah, there's a, there's a collapsing, in a way, of, of distances that are... Um, asserted in other cultures right yes that's true there's plus there's only three seasons right yeah <laughs> maybe, maybe three <laughs> dark and light you mean i don't know well, I, I think it just catapults from sort of spring um from spring into summer mm -hmm. yeah but it does that in canada too that's not unique to iceland <laughs> the changes are are dramatic to say the least mm-hmm but I think of the weather as having the two seasons, which are, is the wind so strong that I can't get out the door today, or is the wind okay and I can actually go down the street? <laughs> Did you come there um, at the beginning of, of the pandemic, or was it mid-pandemic that you arrived? At that time? Yeah, it was August, so it was mid. And we intended to go back in November. We've been trying to go back since November, but but gratefully haven't made it. <laughs> yeah. Does the, does the being there seem more stark given the inability to leave? No, being here seems like a luxury because normal life is almost reinstalled here. They have three cases a day or zero cases a day. And there's restrictions like wearing masks um, in public places, but in general, you can do most of the things of life. So you can go to people's houses and eat at restaurants and go to the pool. And so, so no, it's fine. It's wonderful. It's pretty stark prospect going back to lunatic America. Let's <laughs> <laughs> say we were thinking the other day, you know, it's interesting is everybody here wears a mask because they don't want to make anybody else sick. And it's just, it's so refreshing. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, basically a socialist instinct in the people here. Yeah, they deal with it. They just deal with it. It must be very odd to have watched the election, the events of the, 
of January 6th, the, the you know, ripples of the trial in Minneapolis. I mean, there's something almost like Greek theater about this in the middle of a trial about the injustice of the murder of an unarmed civilian. There's yet another unarmed civilian murdered right. nearby, you know, and, and mm-hmm. I, I guess you two have spent so much time translating and also producing and acting to some degree in theater. I wonder if there's any, if you have any thoughts about the theatricality of this, at least from afar, because it feels sometimes like what we're watching in the news is not, it's obviously deadly serious and, and about real events, but it also is a kind of theater. Yeah. Who's producing it though? I don't get, you know, anybody in charge. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I can't get past the tragedy at this point yet. No, I don't have any theory of that. America is just an upside down place. Yeah, it's just heartbreaking. So. It is it's full of anguish, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I guess I want to ask you a little bit as we move towards talking about Autobiography of Red, which is coming out in Norwegian, which is your novel and verse based to some degree on the myth of Garion? Yeah, that's right. And the, the tenth labor of Pericles. And uh, among one of the threads within this book, which is a kind of modern retelling of that myth, are meditations on time, mm-hmm. you know, on, on what it means to be kind of caught in time. You have this line, even time was squeezing Garion like the pleats of an accordion, mm-hmm. which is a beautiful line. And it also is later reflected in the whole design of Knox, your... Um, Elegy. Yeah. I guess right now time seems more strange than it ever has in my own life. And I wonder if being sort of caught out of time in Iceland, you, you've, you've had any similar impressions or if, or if time seems the same to you. No, COVID time is definitely not the same as the rest of life was. I, it's, it's less severe an impression here, but when we were in Michigan in the summer, when things were pretty bad there, I remember thinking that the days were just infinitely too long and infinitely too short at the same time. It didn't make Mm -hmm. any sense. You would sit around thinking, is it three o'clock yet? And it would be five minutes to three for three hours. And then you get to the end of the day and you've accomplished nothing because it seemed (laughs) to slide by so fast. I also think the thing I remember being in the States was that while being kind of in the midst of this horror of the pandemic, it was the first time that I'd ever seen spring. So in a sense, spring extended. And I actually, you know, for the first time I saw it happen. Yeah, I think time, your perception of time has a lot to do with your method of attention. When you pay attention to something, time stops or at least slows down. And when you're oblivious, as we usually are, just flies past the window without being noticed. And by the way, did you are you totally recovered? Because I know you would, you had been ill. Oh, when I had COVID, yes. The only thing I I feel occasionally is is the sort of it could be middle age or it could be COVID. Long, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I started to go for uh, walks and jogs again, and I think um, was that there before, you mm. know, and and mm. I. I I've reached the age of life where you start to measure time with things that go wrong in your body. Yeah. <laughs> and 
And that's a hard thing to parse with COVID because COVID produced such uh, paranoias too as well, you know. Yeah. Is, is, is that COVID or is that just my anxiety speaking? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been blessed with always being anxious, so I don't have to worry about it. Is that, that's your steady state, Curry? Yeah, I don't have to, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to worry about it because I'm worried about everything already, so. <laughs> There's no, there's no worry inflation within your life. <laughs> it would not be measurable. <laughs> but I guess if you want to talk about our autobiography, Brett, we could start with actually why we came to Reykjavik for this trip. I'd love to hear that, yes. Because what originally, I mean, we, you know, we've come every year for years, and we purchased this apartment on the seaside, and that was great. But the, the reason we are coming this time was... We're working with a number of artists on staging Autobiography of Red, and it's a, it's a theatrical piece. And it would be, and I'll just name everybody who's involved, and uh, the, the composer is a guy named Kerten Svensson, who you might know because he was the keyboard player in Sigur Ross. And then uh, Ragnar Kertensen, the visual artist, is doing the sets. And Ingeborg Sigurdsson's daughter is uh, going to, I guess co-direct with me, and James Mary is doing uh, incidental stuff, and uh, Ben Wishaw is going to be Gary Adams. What an amazing cast! That's that and assemble. That's that's a, that's really fabulous. Yeah, Have you started um, rehearsals? We can't even get the first uh, planning session together because of COVID because Ben is in London and they have their own rules. So, you know, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, no. No, we haven't. <laughs> you're, you're operating on volcanic time. I guess. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I keep bringing that up because um, it's volcanoes is, or, or one of the images that keep that appears throughout Autobiography of Red. Is, mm -hmm. And and I wonder if you could just say a little bit about um, the myth that it's based upon in this rewriting um, for those who aren't familiar with the story of Grayon and, and the 10th labor. Well, yes, I can read the introduction too, but which deals with that. But um, Geryon is the name of a monster from ancient Greek legend who supposedly was red, had wings, and whose function in life was to act as the herdsman of a herd of magical red cattle. And one of the so-called labors of Heracles was to come and steal cattle, which he did, according to the myth, and killed Geryon. So the book that I made of this was based on some ancient poetic fragments of a poet named Stesichorus, who took up the Geryon legend and made a, an epic poem out of it. And then I extracted from the fragments of Stesichorus some modern story about characters with the names Geryon and Heracles. Would you like to read the um, prologue now? I know it might recover some of those details, but I, I, I love the way the story is, is introduced in the book. Okay. So this is the uh, introduction to Autobiography of Red. It's called, What Difference Did Stasicorus Make? There's an epigraph from Gertrude Stein. I like the feeling of words doing as they want to do and as they have to do. He came, after Homer and before Gertrude Stein, a difficult interval for a poet. Born about 650 BC on the north coast of Sicily, 
In a city called Himera, he lived among refugees who spoke a mixed dialect of Chalcidian and Doric. A refugee population is hungry for language and aware that anything can happen. Words bounce. Words, if you let them, will do what they want to do and what they have to do. Stasikara's words were collected in 26 books, of which there remain to us a dozen or so titles and several collections of fragments. Not much is known about his working life. He seems to have had a popular success. How did the ancient critics regard him? Many praises adhere to his name. Most Homeric of the lyric poets, says Longinus, makes those old stories new, says Suidas. Driven by a craving for change, says Dionysius of Halicarnassus. And what a sweet genius in the use of adjectives, adds Hermogenes. Here we touch the core of the question, what difference did Sisychorus make? A comparison may be useful. When Gertrude Stein had to sum up Picasso, she said, this one was working. So, say of Stasychorus, this one was making adjectives. What is an adjective? Nouns name the world, verbs activate the names. Adjectives come from somewhere else. The word adjective, epithaton in Greek, is itself an adjective, meaning placed on top, added, appended, imported, or foreign. Adjectives seem fairly innocent additions, but look again, these small imported mechanisms are in charge of attaching everything in the world to its place in particularity. They are the latches of being. Of course, there are several different ways to be. In the world of the Homeric epic, for example, being is stable and particularity is set fast in tradition. Whenever Homer mentions blood, blood is black. When women appear, women are neat ankled or glancing. Poseidon always has the blue eyebrows of Poseidon. God's laughter is unquenchable. Human knees are quick. The sea is unwearying. Death is bad. Homer's epithets are a fixed diction with which Homer fastens every substance in the world to its aptest attribute and holds them in place for epic consumption. There is a passion in it, but what kind of passion? Consumption is not a passion for substances, but a passion for the code, says Baudrillard. So into the still surface of this code, Stesichorus was born, and Stesichorus began studying the surface restlessly. It leaned away from him. He went closer. It stopped. Passion for substances seems a good description of that moment. For no reason that anyone can name, Stesichorus began to undo the latches. Stesichorus released being. All the substances in the world went floating up. Suddenly there was nothing to interfere with horses being hollow-hooved, or a river being root silver, or a child bruiseless, or a planet middle night stuck. A better example is Geryon. 
Geryon is the name of a character in ancient Greek myth about whom Stesichorus wrote a very long lyric poem in dactylo epitrite meter and triadic structure. Some 84 papyrus fragments and half a dozen citations survive, which go by the name Geryoneus, the Geryon matter, in standard editions. They tell of a strange winged red monster who lived on an island called Erethea, an adjective meaning the red place, and quietly tended a herd of magical red cattle until one day the hero Heracles came across the sea and killed him to get the cattle. There were many different ways to tell a story like this. Heracles was an important Greek hero, and the elimination of Geryon constituted one of his celebrated labors. If Stesichorus had been a more conventional poet, he might have taken the point of view of Heracles and framed a thrilling account of the victory of culture over monstrosity. But instead, the extant fragments of Stesichorus's poem offer a tantalizing cross-section of scenes, both proud and pitiful, from Geryon's own experience. We see his red boy's life and his little dog, a scene of wild appeal from his mother which breaks off, interspersed shots of Heracles approaching over the sea, a flash of the gods in heaven pointing to Geryon's doom, and the battle itself, the moment when everything goes suddenly slow and Heracles' arrow divides Geryon's skull. We see Heracles kill the little dog with his famous club. But that is enough introduction, it says here, and so it is. <laughs> Bravo, I, I love that. Thank you so much. Um, it's beautiful to hear you read it. So I get a question for you before we go any further. Okay. Which is for John, actually. <laughs> Good. So, so John, so you're, you're coming into a theater for a theatrical piece that, as it stands now, will probably be in two parts over two nights, and it's autobiography read. Would you want to hear Ben out of character come to the edge of the stage and give the introduction? Or would you rather that the play just started? I, you know, that's really funny that you asked that because the question I wrote here in my, my notes as Anne was reading was, will Curry be um, casting uh, Sisticorus? <laughs> <laughs> and if, if so, who? Um, <laughs> I guess it all depends on, um, I think yes, actually, to be honest. Uh, I think he's a, a versatile enough actor to be able to to step forward and speak kind of in um, almost critical introductory tones and then to melt back into character. Yeah, I think so too. And, and you think it would be, be good for the, the evening? Yeah, because it tells you what you're about to hear. Um, mm. yeah. And I, I always feel when, I wanna, when I'm gonna hear and see something that's a, a rewriting I, I like to have just a tiny bit of a taste of what cliff it's jumping off of. Yeah, it's nice to know. That's what I thought. Also, in this case, I really wanted people to believe Stesichorus was a real person because people keep thinking I made it all up. Like, <laughs> I didn't make it all up. Well, the the idea that Stesichorus wrote 26 books and 
possibly buried them with meat and other things. <laughs> That's a detail I added. I agree that. <laughs> you <laughs> added that? I thought, <laughs> Well, you know, but that I said I didn't put that in here because I didn't want to get into it. <laughs> well, to some degree, the, the way that you describe the possibility of how those fragments came to be and what they were buried with is a tiny bit like float. Hmm. You know, these, these books kind of ran, ran, not randomly, but put in a box that are then you're invited to take out and read. Oh, yeah, that's true, isn't it? Yeah, I forgot that there's a box and you shake them, <laughs> shake them out however you like. That's right. Yeah, I guess, I guess that appeals to me. Plus, now you're at Kanaf, so you want to you know, make sure we keep those Kanaf books in mind. <laughs> well, actually, I, Curry, I have a question that's slightly for you, but before we get back to your adaptation of Autobiography of Red, is I, the first book, I might be wrong, but the first book in which you're credited as the randomizer is, is Knox. Yeah, I think so. Is that right? Yeah, probably is. Which is the, you know, the, the first big kind of formal leap out of the production of a book as a thing with two covers and pages which run in order, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I wonder if the collaboration between you two as artists has affected the way that you and begin to think about the possibilities of working across mm-hmm. forms, you know, that the form itself isn't just the lyric, the interview, the elegy, it's the, the, the madeness of the object and what the possibilities are when you start to scramble what one thinks of as a book yeah I, it totally changed everything did it yeah hmm. i would have thought it changed nothing kind of like that it was yeah i think basically before i was sitting in a room writing sentences and then uh, i met curry and started to listen to his thoughts about making stuff and then i went to the window and jumped out that's how different it is to me because he believes in I don't know what do you believe in (laughs) trying anything being wrong and trying another thing which is not what my modus operandi ever was as God knows as an academic or as the person who wrote careful books sitting in that room so I would say for the physical production of books and the imagining of books, it made that much difference. And also for performing them, which is something I kind of, we kind of worked into together mm-hmm. for reasons that we could go into, but that that's another whole aspect of it. Because books are, nowadays especially, potential performances mm-hmm. and working with other people's fun yeah and there's also the social aspect of it all which i had never appreciated before but curry is an extrovert as you may know and so everything involves tons of other people so i got used to that and then it kind of it kind of is nice in fact john we did it we did a collaboration with you one time actually we did yeah do you remember yeah, at, at the award ceremony. Right. Oh, yeah. You were great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> this, for those listening, this was a, an award ceremony for Anne's agent, my partner. And it was 
normally a very boring ceremony where someone would get up and recite um, the usual things about thanks and who they worked with. And instead it became a comedic stand-up roast of the agent. And then a sort of impromptu, but not, not impromptu at all, poem occasioned by the directions of, of Curry and Anne, which um, was, I think, very, very surprising to the recipient of that award, who had never been addressed in poetic form ever. <laughs> yeah. But, I, you know, going back to the autobiography of Red, there's that, that opening segment is so provocative because it, it sort of reconstitutes the meanings of language by breaking it down to its very essential elements, nouns, verbs, adjectives, and then sort of reassembles them and then relaunches this sort of retelling of the myth of, of Geryon. Um, but I wanted to ask Curry, are there components of theater that kind of correspond with something like adjective hmm. that you can kind of play upon? That Because the, the book itself is, I think, playing in the, in the, the mock epic tone and I wonder if that is that has gestures in theater that you that you're working with. It could, I mean, it it, it could, but the, you know, this is going to be kind of a unique piece because we we had started thinking of it, rewriting it as a as a as a theatrical piece, and then and then we thought actually the whole thing is there in the book already, so we changed our approach, and so essentially it's going to be um, an embellished reading, I guess you'd say, wouldn't you? Something like that. But the music is adjectival. That's true. What we do, the 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 way in which we might change it, and as Anne says, the adjectival way is is the music is going to be choral, mostly choral work, and it's going to be uh, essentially description of place. Speaking of which, um, one of the provocative aspects of this is is it could be Iceland, it could be. Norway, it could be Michigan, it could be Canada. The the setting of um, of Garan's life is both elemental and highly uh, sensory, but it's also not specific. Hmm. I wonder what you're going to do about that um, in the, in the opening pages of the book, as Garan's growing up and having a terribly sad and damaging relationship to some degree with his brother. Mm-hmm under the the not always observant wing of his mother um, and this, I think, stark landscape. That's going to be a big load for Ragnar. <laughs> <laughs> so Ragnar Kjartans is going to paint sets. Do you, have you seen any of his uh, duration pieces? Yeah, they're incredible. Yeah, so... so um, the the theaters we've been thinking about doing this, there's no fly space, so it's all going to be uh, movable sets. And I think uh, you know our our first theater, first idea about the sets. You know we haven't really decided this, but the first idea is to to just have the sets very slowly but constantly moving. So there's this this always slow shift on the stage. As, as Ben is retelling the story. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a non-specific. So, yeah, it becomes non-specific place. About, about place, but it becomes about the changing expanse, really. Mm. Yeah, change, which is kind of like the landscape here and also kind of like the music yeah. that 
Kjartan Svensson is a Sigurás guy, and Sigurás music, if you think of it, is always playing the landscape mm. of Iceland. The This book, um, perhaps more than others, I feel, has is sort of ravaged by simile. Mm. You know, there's these lines, that the bedroom doorway gaped at him black as a keyhole, or his brain was jerking forward like a bad slide projector. Pericles <laughs> yeah. liked to make love early in the morning like a sleepy bear taking the lid off a jar of honey. Those are pretty good, aren't they? I, used to I have to say, you know, those are those are <laughs> and with simples. It's something you can only do in the in the youthful time of being a writer. Believe in your own similes. After <laughs> after I don't know age forty five, you get really before you were dominated by your aches. <laughs> you get really tired of them. But yeah, I, it's it's like cake putting putting in the similes. But you don't really like, you kind of don't want to do that anymore, it seems, though. Well, just because I feel dumb doing it. Not that I don't. Why do you feel dumb doing it? Because it's over. I mean, as I say, you get used up. You use up that whole seam of your mind, I hmm. think. Or anyway, the world doesn't need more similes, though, right now. It's already totally messed up with similes. <laughs> Let's just get some plain, stark facts. Well, somehow they, they they jump out of time, like the immediacy and intimacy of a face. Yeah. And I, you know, I was rereading um, your translations of the fragments of Sappho, and one of my favorites is number 47. Mm-hmm. And it goes, arrows shook my mind like a mountain wind fallen oak trees. Mm-hmm. And you, you read that and you think that is a person who has been in love. Yeah. Yes, I think she had. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite was gold ankle bone cups, but I don't know why. <laughs> gold ankle bone cups is another good one. What's the the last one that was? It's not millet. What is it? Some grain. Oh, can't remember. Because you know we made a performance out of Sappho for Dan. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it was done. Um, we. It was dance for voice, for voice and also bodies. Yes. Yeah, it goes 189 soda, 190 many skilled, 191 celery, and then the final one, gold ankle bone cups. Right. Yeah, there's another one somewhere that has a millet or something in it. Anyway, it doesn't yeah. matter. But we, it was, um, did you want to hear about this piece that we made? I would love to hear this. <laughs> no, we were we were doing a, a piece with another artist, and it was going slowly in that particularly interesting way. So we approached a friend of ours named Rashawn Mitchell, who was a, a dancer in New York choreographer, and asked him if he would choreograph a 15-minute piece. And based on what we were going to give him were... Um, the fragments of, of Sappho. So he created a duet out of um, out of the material, but we didn't tell him what you know fragments we were using. We didn't know because we came out with the we came up with the fragments through a chance operation of some sort, and then we came up with the reading. Oh, I guess that was through the star map, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Recreated a star map of the stars above Lesbos and. 684 BC or whatever you said. What was it? 653. 653. You know, there's an internet program where you can 
type in a date, any date of history, and get the star map of that night in the universe. So we did that for Sappho's birthday, which I fantasized to be the same day as my birthday in 653 BC. And we got a star map, and we used the star map to designate... To what, choose the, the fragments. Choose the fragments and who reads what fragment, because right. we had... Well, actually, that was the clouds. Oh, yeah. Well, that's and then cool. we, after we chose the fragments, this is really, I know. This is too this much This is kind of dull, but we'll right. finish it anyway. <laughs> so then we used, uh, used this, the, on the same day in whatever year that was, 2013 or something, we used... We drew pictures of the clouds in the sky above on the same day as the Lesbos birthday. Mm -hmm. And then we used the clouds to decide who reads which part of te the text and which parts of the text were in unison. So there were four voices, two voices reading the fragments, one voice reading the footnotes, and third voice was a person just reading 183 brackets. Fourth voice. Fourth voice, yeah. So just Leaving being bracket, word. bracket, bracket, you know, between each piece. So that was that. It was a quick piece. It was kind of nice, actually. It was a quicker piece than that introduction, too. Yeah. It's, <laughs> the piece is already over. You've already left the theater. <laughs> Those brackets in Sappho, though, say so much. They do. They're good brackets. Yes. You don't know how many times people have written to me, said, I love the Sappho translations, especially the empty spaces in between the thoughts. And I'm sending you attached here a document where I filled in all the spaces, <laughs> my, my own thoughts on what those poems should be saying. It's a funny thing, people. <laughs> Do you ever worry, you know, in, in one of your poems, you had a, a line about uh, a figure from mythological pasts and in, in sort of almost parentheses, you, you wrote, I am free to invent her, exclamation point. <laughs> and I, I wonder, you know, with, with a book like Autobiography of Red, do you think, okay, I, I need to make this kind of lean as an arrow and, and so, so that I don't completely fill the silence that uh, time has left around Garion? Hmm. Or do you feel less like with a, a myth like this that... Uh, you know, res responsibility to the silence is that is as important as say in fragments of a of Sappho. I think uh, was less important with Garion than with the Sappho because the Sappho I was translating these actual bits of language that do exist and the gaps do exist. So I was trying to represent that relationship accurately and the absences accurately. With the Garion, I was making the whole thing up, more or less. But you're as naturally as, economical, though. Yeah, anyway. yeah. I don't like a lot of flesh on the story, but but there's more flesh on that story than most of the ones since. So, but I did feel freer. I didn't feel free with Sappho, and then anything. It was. It had to be what was there. You know, I have a question about that. Okay. So, and this is sort of, I, John probably doesn't know this, but how did the, how do you think the translation changed after it was stolen? Oh, it got better. My computer, when I was doing the translation of Sappho when I lived in Berkeley one year, and 
computer was stolen out the window. You just finished it, right? It was done. No, it was half done. Oh, okay. And so that half that was done went out the window on the computer, and I disappeared <laughs> a while and then started over. But it did get better, I think, because when you think things a second time, they kind of pare down. Is it the same space? Is the opening up of having it stolen the space that created? Hmm. I don't know. I just knew I had to start over and just think stuff again, which is pretty horrible. And then you do it, and it's fine. So someone somewhere in Northern California has a laptop stuffed with half of Sappho's uh, fragments. Yeah, somebody has that. Or... Why did you give carry on such uh, uh, this uh, abusive relationship with his brother um, it's it's mesmerizing and, and terrifying um, at the, at once oh I don't know why it just seems to be brotherly <laughs> yeah brotherly most <laughs> people I know have pretty dicey relationships with their brother yeah it's a compelling mixture of tenderness and and abuse yeah. Well, yes, again, not most people I know describe that as the texture of fraternal life. Yeah. How how will you represent this, Curry? I mean, because the the nature of the, the abuse is described acutely in some of the passages, and I wonder how that will be performed on stage. Well, you know, I mean, this is kind of a collective piece. It's really going to be up to Ben. Yeah, you know, I think it's performance. It's a performative important. part of it. And I think we can certainly give him direction. But I think I think for those bits, the best thing is to just give him room, give him room for pace. Because I think I think those parts will come down to how they're paced, the cadence of them. Hmm. So by the way, I should tell you right now, it's raining on the east side of the house from the south and on the west side of the house from the north, just to give you a sense of Iceland. All the winds it's raining in two directions. Two <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, you have selective weather. Yes. Yeah, right yes. here. Does that answer what you're, you're asking? Absolutely. I mean, one of the compelling, other compelling aspects of the book, among many, is the differing vectors of dialogue that it has. Sometimes the dialogue is sort of happening inside of um, mm-hmm. Garyon's head, sort of almost in memory. And then sometimes it's unfolding before us, such as when he meets Heracles and they're in the kind of driving dialogues of seduction. Right? Mm-hmm. In fact, that's the, that's so far that it's the most difficult thing to figure out how to manage because do, mm-hmm. do we want to use voices out of the chorus in dialogue with Ben or, or do we have Ben... Mm-hmm just carry all the voices and all the emotion those voices carry. So, you know, we're really still trying to figure that one out, actually. I sort of saw um, Garyon's mother singing to him. That would be nice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's something sort of um, songs of innocence and experience like about the way she calls to him in that section uh, screen door. Oh, yeah, I have that here. Would you would you read it? Why don't I read it? You just have <laughs> Wow. This is chapter five, autobiography of Red. Chapter five, screen door. His mother stood at the ironing board, lighting a cigarette and regarding Garyon. 
Outside, the dark pink air was already hot and alive with cries. Time to go to school, she said for the third time. Her cool voice floated over a pile of fresh tea towels and across the shadowy kitchen to where Garion stood at the screen door. He would remember when he was past 40, the dusty, almost medieval smell of the screen itself as it pressed its grid onto his face. She was behind him now. This would be hard for you if you were weak, but you're not weak, she said, and she neatened his little red wings and pushed him out the door. I love the just uh, completely never explained, absolutely entitled image of his wings, which he carries throughout the whole book. And I'm curious, Curie, will you, will the costume designer be making these wings? Aha, uh -huh. good question. Excellent <laughs> question. It's, you know, there's nothing more awful than wings on a theatrical stage, don't you think? <laughs> Angels in a <laughs> But so we're turning over to a guy named James Mary. He's um, a really terrific visual artist. He was um, for years was Bjork's collaborator. And, you know, if you remember all the masks she used to, she wears, yeah. well, he, he crafts all those masks. So he's the one who is, who is going to design the, he had some ideas. He wanted to do wings and he had some ideas of doing them as gloves. Mm -hmm. That was one idea. You, you know, mean gloves on the hand? Gloves on the hand. Yeah. And having a, gloves everywhere. having a cupboard of different gloves. Yeah, we thought he should have all different wings and go to the cupboard and get, you know, ones that are, are apt for the situation. Right. <laughs> so we're, we're again, we're just starting to think about it. But here, I can... We're just making this up, actually. Yeah, totally. Going. But I can <laughs> tell you, uh, uh, you know, as long as Ben never hears this this interview and no one that knows him will ever hear it, I'll, I'll tell you a secret, which was when we first started working on this, I thought the two characters that should be on stage were, were Gary Ann and his mother you know, rather than Heracles or something. And so I'm more than willing to hear no from anybody. So that means I'm more than willing to ask anybody anything. So I had this great idea that we would have Bjork play his mother. <laughs> and and Ben said, in like a nanosecond, said, no, because if Bjork was on the stage, no one would pay attention to me. <laughs> So, so that was our our first model, and it it was it was quickly. That's the only time he's ever said no to anything I've ever said. I think she is mesmerizing. I was I once went to a party and she was there, and it was like the entire room had a spotlight on her. Not because she was famous, but just a simple yeah. somehow vibration of this of the self and body. Yeah, and, it is a vibration. And you could you would never meet a kinder or lovelier person. Yeah, she's very unassuming, despite the she's vibration. Our, she's our neighbor, just down the, she just down just the road. She lives just down the street there. I have a question, Anne, about the you know your changing writing process now that so much of your work is is collaborative. Do you do you look back on the early periods of your life writing Glass, Irony, and God, and you know, those short talks and you know, the, some of the work in, I guess, would have been Autobiography of Red. Does it seem very solitary in, in retrospect? Mm -hmm. No, not really, because the room would have been full of all those characters. 
I mean, Gary on hair, please, blah, blah, blah. No, I can never feel solitary. You're always dragging them around with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, I wondered about that, you know, that there's this passage as autobiography of Red goes on and Heracles and Garyon have this really beautifully described love affair that then, you know, slows as they often do to a crawl and breaks Garyon's heart. And at some point he goes to work in a, in a library and mm -hmm. the underground description of working within archives was, was so redolent of, um, solitude, solitude and loneliness. <laughs> I, in a very fatuous kind of literal way, thought this is written by someone who spent a lot of time alone in archives. <laughs> <laughs> I did actually work in the government documents department of the University of Toronto Library, usually in the basement where they kept all the all the archive archived <laughs> pamphlets. And uh, I remember being down there as one of my happiest experiences. <laughs> I being able to be alone in the stacks with all the pamphlets and think my own thoughts. I mean, people always say that, oh, being a writer is such a lonely life. I've never found it lonely because you're, you're full of thoughts. She <laughs> finds it lonely when I invite people over. <laughs> yeah. As you know from your place, you know, I'm likely just to come by Nicole's office just because it's there on my walk. So. I know. Actually, we have a, a plate of sandwiches that's waiting for you. <laughs> this For the listeners, uh, Curry is, is an, an art uh, artful um, practitioner of the drop-by. <laughs> around lunchtime. Always around lunchtime. <laughs> yes. And, and, and as in the second half of this gorgeous book, Autobiography of Red, there's, which has a... a I think one of my favorite passages in literature about the sandwich. Um, oh, uh, yeah, that was a tasty sandwich, wasn't it? That comes off the page. <laughs> yes. What is well, it? You had that passage in front of you? I, I will find it in two seconds. It's about being the philosopher of the sandwich. He's basically, in the second half of the book, Garion travels to Argentina, and he goes, goes out one night with people who are there at a kind of philosophy conference. Yeah. And it has that experience of sitting, probably drinking a little too much in a tiny cafe. And then at some point, someone decides to order sandwiches, yeah. a gesture he does not see. But suddenly the sandwiches just arrive like magic. And he's totally starving because he's been at this conference all day with no refreshment. And it's, where, where is this passage? It's, I've had that experience before when a sandwich seems like a miracle. <laughs> oh, actually, that's the word you use. It's on page 97. There you go. <laughs> uh, they went on to discuss the nature of boredom, ending with a long joke about monks and soup that Garion could not follow, though it was explained to him twice. The punchline contained a Spanish phrase meaning bad milk, which caused the philosophers to lean their heads on the table in helpless joy. Jokes make them happy, thought Garion watching. Then a miracle occurred in the form of a plate of sandwiches. Garyon took three and buried his mouth in a delicious block of white bread filled with tomatoes and butter and salt. He thought about how delicious it was, how he liked slippery foods, how slipperiness can be of different kinds. I'm a philosopher of sandwiches, he decided. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it makes me want to have a tomato sandwich right That's now. Right. <laughs> And, and I, uh, as soon as this is over, I'm going to order myself um, a, a sandwich. But I, I wanted to ask you just a few more questions about 
you know, the, your, your kind of writing process and how it's changed over time. And as you know, this series in the podcast, part of what it's thinking about is this writing in isolation or being in isolation. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious, since we've been speaking about collaboration, if there are forms of, of writing you've described, moving away from simile and the types of writing that one does in one's youthishness, you know, are, are there forms of writing that can be done collectively and almost in public? Uh, I, the last time I was in Iceland, a very keen youngish publisher talked about a festival that is done there where you, if not write something publicly, then it's delivered and then burned and sent out on the water. I, I wonder if you can talk about sort of... Oh, the moon books. Yeah, Ragnar Helge. Ragnar Helge. We, do a moon, we did a moon book with him. Yeah. Yes, they publish a certain number of them. 60. 60 copies of the book, and they have a reading on the night of the full moon, and then they sell the books, and any they don't sell... Well, they used to throw them in the sea, but that became ecologically dubious, so now they burn them. If they burn them, yeah. The night of, right? Yeah, on that night. But yeah. Anne, Anne screwed the whole thing up because the, the moon book sheet that they sold out of, so they had nothing to burn there, really. <laughs> so they burned some other old books. Yeah, they found some other old books in the back. <laughs> Does the knowledge, though, of its ephemeralness make you write differently or make you think about what to say in a different mode? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know that it made me think about it differently. Right, yeah. Well, that's a good question, but I, I haven't got an answer. I guess the question behind the question is, do you write for time? Do you write for someone unseen beyond your lifetime? You have this wonderful quote in Plain water, uh, sun is the only pulse that runs itself, while transiency grasps the rest of us through and through. Helios rides it as a cup across the sky, <laughs> which is uh, a translation as well from a fragment. Yeah. But, uh, you know, working within translation of the types that you've done, you must have had to make some sort of separate piece with time, you know, about how you feel about it, looking over your shoulder as a poet. Mm-hmm. Now, I've always assumed my work would disappear five minutes after I died, frankly. <laughs> I don't think of the long-term issue. Yeah, and nowadays, actually, I do more drawing than writing. And uh, most of my drawings are done with bad materials on crappy paper, so they'll definitely disappear <laughs> pretty soon, probably before my... But do you write? But do you write into the future at all, or do you just write in in, no. in, in the moment? Yeah, moment. I'm, yeah, I'm in the moment. I wouldn't know how to write toward the future, would you? Mm -mm. No. Well, in Norway, they have uh, there's some kind of organization which sponsors a kind of time capsule. Mm -hmm. Margaret Atwood and other writers have written a kind of letter to the future and buried it, uh, which I think will is buried under a tree, which will be dug up a hundred years from now. And I, hmm. I I always think of that as such a, a curious, but to some degree apt metaphor for what writing is. You know, it's a, hmm. except the difference being perhaps most writing doesn't know whether it's going to be dug up and perhaps assumes it will not. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine what somebody would make of 
a time capsule hundred years from now. It just seems silly to me, frankly. But you know that that idea of likes was kind of interesting. You didn't think so? Which idea? Oh, Mike Kelly was a house, mm-hmm. the mobile homestead. Mike Kelly did, did a the last piece he did before he passed away was a thing called mobile homestead, and part of the piece is is he you know he, he just rebuilt his childhood home and then he put a sub basement that would have stuff about the suburbs in it and then he has sub sub basement that no one can ever see which is the secret life of the suburbs and then a number of artists have been commissioned to make pieces to be put in the sub sub basement to never be seen so rather than unmasking it in 100 years it supposedly was never supposed to be hiding it in time hiding it in time (laughs) yeah i prefer that i think this is not a a time capsule but it is a kind of daisy chain of interviews and Mm. you know this one of the interviews came before was with rachel cusk um who had a question for you, and I wanted to pose it now before we signed off. Which element of your work in the end has afforded you the truest self-expression, the personal or the classical? Uh, Well, yeah, it's hard to answer because, hmm, I wish I was more interested in self-expression. I can't, I mean, I know the self is all over my writing and that's a source of frustration, but... I'd really rather think of it as um, trying to express what's true about the world rather than about myself. And so the thing with the difference between personal writing and classical writing or academic writing, there just isn't a difference. It's the same effort to say something true you know, to find the next word that's true in the sentence and then to find the next word after that. That's that's really the whole game. So uh, that would be my thought on that. Um, you're, you're at the final rung of this wheel and the next rung is uh, the writer Emmanuel Carrere. And I guess you probably have a question prepared for him. Um, sure. Do you want to read that now? Yes. Emmanuel Carrere, can you tell me what is your favorite part of speech or grammatical construction and why? Excellent. I can't, I can't wait to hear his answer. <laughs> me too. <laughs> He's a very unexpected writer. You never know what to, you're going to get with him. <laughs> One of my favorite books of yours is the, uh, the Albertine Workout. Oh yeah, and I love the. It's a form that you that you've used before in smaller instances. This this sort of logical series of statements. Yes, and I I wonder what that provides. Is it is it a sort of yoking forward of assumptions into into creation? Pseudo rationality. I've always <laughs> had such an envy of philosophers because they have this belief in logic and logical sequences and logical methods, and they have all these little kind of fancy names for their logical procedures. And I just, I just want to be like that. <laughs> and instead, I'm in this disarray of you know paint splotches all over my <laughs> brain. And then, and then in the last one, you were really thwarted. 
the last the one. Socratics, that last kind of list list that was a logical list of facts about the Socratic people that we that we then took with a guy named Avon Kang and Jessica Kenny, a couple of musicians, and we changed the order of it. Well, here, let me rephrase this and tell you <laughs> what really happened. I wrote a nice essay about the Cycladic people, you know, the people who lived in 3000 BC on the Cycladic islands. And I had a number of paragraphs making a nice little kind of a story about what we know. Sort of like them. the Albertine. And Curry took it and randomized it. So then when we performed it, I had to read all the things of the story, not only in the wrong order, but in an order I didn't know, because he would just call out numbers, and I would have to find that number in the list of numbered sentences and read that sentence. So uh, anyway, that's how that went. <laughs> <laughs> but my was to make a logical sequence. Can you just tell me how the randomizer as a metaphor and actual function developed? I mean, was, was this as a game, or was it a, uh, an idea of what a person is when they come into your life? <laughs> it was desperation because we were constantly being in Q&A situations much like this and people would watch the performance and then Curry would be sort of on the side or in the chair at the front of the audience and people would say, well, what do you do, Curry? What's your function? <laughs> and we had a description of it or even a paraphrase and no name. So we made up the name Randomizer and got a T-shirt that has randomizer on the on the front and a volcano on the back and the volcano on the back just to settle that question. He does randomizing, <laughs> and we so we don't know what it means. But <laughs> it means he uses the random integer generator on the internet occasionally to confuse my performances of otherwise logical sequences <laughs> of ideas. Knox has that beautiful passage about the skepticism of history. Hmm. And one of history's, you know, myths is is that there is a causality rather than a randomizer at, at the heart of it. Um, coming back to the autobiography of Red, one of the things I feel speaks outside of time is that all of us are affected by color in profound and kind of elemental ways. And that to me seems an element outside of time, hmm. you know, like maybe paint splotches, digital records of color have changed a little bit, but most of us see color and are operated on it by it in ways that we don't fully understand. And your, uh, your Bacchae version, there's that wonderful riff of green, mm -hmm. green fresh out of pools, green slipped under fools, green of the green fuse, green of the honey muse. And it just it explodes into this riff that I read and almost, you know, turned green with jealousy and <laughs> love. <laughs> How beautiful it was. That was a confusing moment for you. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was so many things at once, which all the good moments are. But, I, you know, in Autobiography of Red, you know, the red is daubed over the canvas of the poem and just simply operates. And I, I, I'm curious what your relationship to color is now that you're drawing more. I would say rapturous. <laughs> I'm not any, I've never learned anything about painting, but when I do paint, I have tubes, you know, and the best thing is just to squeeze it out onto the paper and look at the, the color itself as a thing. The colors are just 
the most staggeringly beautiful <laughs> invention. <laughs> yeah, Ann and I were talking about that just last week, strangely, because, you know, we we taught at NYU until a year ago, and oddly, we had to teach, you know, like everybody had to teach last month of the class on Zoom, and they haven't gone away yet, even though we no longer teach at NYU. We're still meeting them once a week. We've been meeting them for like over a year. But anyway, one of the things we were talking about was was just that, the same thing. I'll go to a, a place like uh, Twin Rocker Papers, and I'll buy the paper thinking I'm going to make something. And then it's like, no, this paper is so much better than anything I would make. <laughs> so I would just look look at the papers like you look at the paint. But would you be drawing, would you be writing more if you were someplace where there were books? Since you, since there's really no English books here, there's no, and you do, and you do research when you write. Yeah, probably more or different. Hmm. Have you had a relationship to the color red? I ask you because if you, I'm glad the Zoom is without camera here, but I'm sitting with a fan of all of your books around me. <laughs> <laughs> of the case of if not winter, fragments of Sappho is red, and there's red on the cover. Red Dock obviously has a, some red on it, and those cases red. Autobiography of Red, obviously the the title of it is in red, and the case of the book is red. Antigonic is red. The title Glass Irony of God, the title in that book is in red. So is Orestia, Grief Lessons, Beauty of the Husband. Um, I mean, there's a there's a field of red around me. I can't imagine that's accidental. <laughs> red is the best color. It would be our conclusion there. <laughs> uh, no one would disagree. No one. Wow. <laughs> Will you have a curtain of red behind this performance? Oh, good thinking. I guess that depends on Ragnar, but... We'll, we'll cite you. <laughs> we'll give you counts <laughs> just for that. <laughs> yeah, any other suggestions? Put them in the box on the way out. <laughs> uh, well, the last suggestion I'll leave you with is um, I think it's time to have a sandwich. Um, <laughs> um, well, uh, it's nearing lunchtime here, and my function now, if I were on stage, is to make sure that um, a certain person gets lunch before uh, that person gets hangry. Um, <laughs> okay. So, so, so I should I should sign off here um, uh, unless there's anything else you wish to say before um, you fade back into the uh, <laughs> sea view there in Iceland. Into is there fifty kilometer wind. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. I, I only wish now we could all be in the same place so we could watch uh, Ben Wishaw. Um, yeah, someday, someday we'll do that. Come, come. We'll be rehearsing here. It'll give you a reason to come to Iceland. Oh, yeah. That, that is enough. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast was produced by the House of Literature. Remember to subscribe to How to Proceed and our other English language podcast, Lit House. And please check out our show notes for links to some of the things Carson Curry and Freeman talked about in this episode.